This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello and welcome to Triple Vision. My name is Hannah Levitt and I'll be your host for this opening segment of Triple Vision today. David, uh, my co-host, will be with us just after this first round table. Today we are talking about eugenics. Most of us, when we think of eugenics, are reminded of World War II and the Nazis and their quest for a superior race. Eugenics can eliminate undesirable characteristics in a human population, such as diseases that cause disabilities and such. So as disabled people, that's what we're very concerned with about eugenics. So today we're going to have a little roundtable discussion with three women who've experienced eugenics. First of all, I'd like to invite Charlie and Diana to join me. Charlie is Charlene Ayotte, also known as Charlie, and we also have with us today Diana Brett. I'd like to ask Charlie to start us off with what your experience was with eugenics. My story starts in 1976, three days before Christmas. I was at the office of my ophthalmologist who had for months been doing a number of tests and delving into what was causing the loss of my vision. That day, I was there with my three-year-old daughter who was in the waiting room with a friend. The doctor and I started talking. You could hear my little girl out in the waiting room, age three, doing what three-year-olds do, make noise and ask questions. The doctor at that point in time said, if I didn't have control of my child soon, she would grow up and ultimately end up in jail which I thought was a little bizarre. He went on to tell me that my eye condition was worsening and had gotten to the point where I was now legally blind and that there was nothing more he could do for me and that he would send my file off to CMIB for processing. It was a shock. And to add to further shock, he told me that he considered my condition to be congenital and that he recommended that I consider sterilization so that a congenital eye disease would not be passed on to any future children I may choose to have. The shock was complete. I went home, I cried a lot. But ultimately, uh, the following year, I had my tubes tied, and I did not have any more children. I'm also pleased to report that my darling three-year-old grew into a fabulous, kind, and gentle woman who I share a great relationship with to these days. I think, in my case, coming from 
a sighted world into a world of blindness was so much of a shock because the stories we heard through public service announcements were terrifying. It projected blind people as dependent and helpless. And that's what I was expecting. That ultimately was not what happened in my case, as it has also happened in many other cases where people who are resilient and they choose to follow a different path, although the stories about it, that negative story about blindness, continues to this day. Thanks for sharing your story, Charlie. Next up, we have Diana Brent, and she's going to talk to us about her experience with eugenics. So welcome, Diana. Well, thank you very much, Hannah. My story in some ways is similar to to Charlie's in the sense that when we had our first child, I was in the hospital And of course, when you're a new mom, you're learning to do all kinds of things like breastfeed and change the baby and dress the baby and bath the baby and all of those things. And I was very fortunate because when I was younger, I got to babysit for an aunt. So when my cousin was born, I got to do some of those things. But of course, with your own baby, you're a little nervous. And so I'm in the hospital and I'm looking after this baby and and she's fine. And I think I was probably a little awkward because I hadn't done changed many diapers or put on the baby's clothes. And a nurse was standing over me and watching me. And she said to me, I can't understand. She said, you realize you shouldn't be having children because you're not going to be able to look after them. Well, I was really angry. And um, of course, that doesn't do anything to your confidence as a young mother But I think I snapped back and said, we'll be just fine. And we are just fine. My kids are now 41 and 38, and they have children of their own, which I still babysit. But I had that experience. And there were other nurses in the hospital that were very nice to me. So I'm not saying the whole experience was terrible. But the medical profession in general, it's very interesting because I think it's totally ironic that the because the medical profession has made such strides in the last, I would say, 20th century and 21st, they are very much responsible for the rising of the consumer movement and the independent movement in the 60s and 70s because they were so able to keep more children with disabilities alive from when they were infants. And so at the time in the 60s and 70s when all these young people were growing up, they didn't want to be hidden away. They didn't want to be in closets. They didn't want to be in any of those places that had previously been our domain. And so they started all these movements 
And part of the issue with that, from the medical profession's point of view, and I'm not definitely not giving them a pass, but I have to say part of the problem is their whole reason for being is to fix people with disabilities. That is, and it's not just the disability, it's any kind of medical condition we have. And so when they're trying to fix us, they know that they cannot fix our disability. And that, I think, puts them in a bit of a guilt position because they want to do that. And so you often get medical professionals who, whether it's attitude or whether it's this feeling of, I should be able to do something for you. The issue is that we don't want to necessarily be fixed. We're quite used to being the way we are. And we've been this way, possibly not in Charlie's case, but in my case, since birth. And therefore, this is kind of the way I am. Thanks, Diana, for sharing that. I also have a story about eugenics and it happened when I was in my early 20s and my husband and I were considering having a family and I happened to mention it to my GP one day and um, he thought that we should go see a geneticist because I had um, a cancerous brain tumor as a child. It was not congenital though, uh, but my husband's condition was. He had uh, retinoblastoma and so they thought we would benefit from genetic counseling. So we went for genetic counseling um, not really questioning what was really going on there, but this counselor told us without ever taking any kind of samples from us at all, either one of us, that if we were to have a child, it would probably come out like the elephant man, all, you know, um, distorted and disabled and everything. And, uh, as a result, we, you know, talked about it and, decided not to have children. But when I look back on it now, I'm going, wow, they didn't even take a sample or anything from us. And based on no evidence, no scientific evidence at all, they told us not to have children. So when I look back on it now, I'm going, wow, how come, how did I accept that so readily? And it was just because it came from the medical profession and I didn't recognize it as eugenics then, but that's what it was. Can I ask you, Charlie, how old you were when that happened? I was 25. You were 25. And how about you, Diana? How old were you when you experienced your eugenics? I had just turned 30. We'd been married for four years and had just had my first daughter. I was in my early 20s, so we were all like 30 and under. I don't know about you two, but I just didn't realize I had any recourse. I never, it never dawned on me to ask for a second opinion or anything like that. Did, did you guys experience anything? like sort of where you wanted to rise up a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I always knew that I would, you know, if you wanted something, you had to fight the attitudes of the people that were around you. Um, and I always said I'd never apply for a job I couldn't didn't figure I could do, uh, but you'd have to fight and prove that you could do it, right? And, right. and so I was in some ways used to fighting for what I figured I should be able to do. And in this case, when the nurse told me I, you know, shouldn't be having babies, I just, 
basically told her, well, I had this baby and we would be fine. And we were. I'm always interested in how we react differently to information. Like Diana, in your case, you just rejected it and went on. I think I tend to internalize those kind of comments into like, I'm not good enough to have a child. I didn't fight back in terms of saying I'm capable of parenting. Like that's the challenge, right? Is, is parenting when you're blind. And Mm -hmm. I didn't think of that. I took that statement as meaning you're not good enough. Mm. You're not valuable enough to society to reproduce. And it's, so how about you, Charlie? Can you think back? I mean, you already had a child, but you decided to have your tubes tied. Do you remember making that distinction? Like, did you feel you weren't good enough versus this was just a medical opinion? Um, my When I told my former husband what was happening, he decided he would, he would like to have custody of our daughter because he didn't think I would be good enough as a parent to properly protect her. And that I, I can remember one day he kind of implied that when he said, so this is what happens when you send her to me on the weekend with wearing a dirty shirt. It's like she dropped something on her shirt and there was a mess. And um, so, you know, I, I went through a period of maybe two years of questioning my capacity to parent, even after I had my tooth tied. So I just thought I wasn't probably good enough. I have to say, I had a, have a husband and a family that was a support system too. So, I mean, it, it, Charlie was kind of on her own. She was saying she was ending up having to do a lot of single parenting. And I know people, are, you know, get in that position and that makes it harder. I still had to do stuff because my husband was working every day. And, you know, so I mean, it wasn't like, I abdicated responsibility, but that support system was there. Thanks, Charlie and Diane. When I listen to all of our stories, it makes me think about stereotyping and how maybe we've all become fallen victim to it in a way. Maybe the healthcare industry has, and maybe even we've bought into it a little bit ourselves. To talk about the impact of eugenics on disabled Canadians, we have Bonnie Lashowitz with us today. Bonnie is a professor at the University of Calgary, and she has published several articles in journals that are devoted to mental health, social work, nursing, and disability studies. And among many awards, she was awarded the Bachelor of Health Science Teaching in 2017. Professor Lashowitz, welcome to Triple Vision. Thanks very much for having me to be part of this important conversation. So, Bonnie, we don't think about eugenics in Canada today necessarily, like on a daily basis. It's not really a top of mind subject, but it it does go on. And so we we really, especially 
in in sort of marginalized communities. And so can you set us a little bit of a historical context? Yes, I'd be um, pleased to. And I mean, you know, we, we think that we have moved so far forward and are so, you know, inclusive and um, valuing of human dignity and our, you know, organization of our structures and processes as a, as a society. I think something it's easy to lose uh, track of is what some of the decolonizing and critical race theory people are speaking about as epistemic racism. And uh, so epistemic, you know, about epistemologies, it's our way of knowing, our way of being. And, uh, you know, the metaphor I always use is that our way of making sense of the world is, um, you know, we, we are immersed in that, not unlike the way a fish is immersed in water, and it just becomes, uh, you know, an unconscious sort of permeates everything you do. And we are an extraordinarily ableist society. Society. Um, Western societies, um, I'll single out for their emphasis on productivity and busyness and achievement and bottom line driven kinds of outputs. And consequently, that leaves us very uncomfortable when there's any sort of suggestion or perception that someone does not measure up to those ableist kinds of standards. Bonnie, I see in your paper that you link colonialism and eugenics. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, in that paper, we did a really careful sort of tracing back of uh, Canada's history. And, you know, we um, recognize the, you know, the, the, the beauty and security and wonder uh, aspects of Canada, certainly. But sometimes uh, Canada prides itself on being this inclusive sort of culture. And uh, that can incline us to turn our faces away from some very colonial and ableist history. Histories. And so what we did in that paper is delved back into the kind of origins of the Canadian nation, if you will. And particularly, we singled out the ways that certain types of people, if you will, entertain the idea of types. In this case, we we're thinking about Indigenous people and um, disabled people, the ways that they are subtly and overtly pathologized, treated as problems to be um, managed around or to be contained or um, to be fixed. And we drew out some of the origins of um, institutional care, of um, containment of Indigenous people on reservations, and uh, found some just a very perturbing sort of reliance on that as part of the unfolding of what we today understand as Canada. So can you tell us a little bit about sterilization as a, a form of eugenics? And even at the time when it was conducted, was it ever actually legal? Mm-hmm. And so um, we note in the paper that coerced sterilization, you know, has been a practice in many Canadian provinces, but it was actually formalized into the legislation of Alberta and, uh, and also of British Columbia. 
And it is, uh, you know, predicated on this very hierarchical and ableist and colonial sort of justification of trying to purify or trying to strengthen populations, trying to strengthen ultimately the nation. And uh, what it did is left hand, uh, power in the hands of so-called experts to make those decisions. I wonder if um, people listening to the podcast are familiar with the fairly famous documentary profiling the story of Leleni Muir in Alberta. Um, and uh, she received uh, quite a substantial settlement for wrongful sterilization. But there were, yes, certainly, you know, what we think about pioneering Canada and, you know, all of the pride of nation building. Um, there were strong forces that sought to eliminate defects, if you will. And hopefully by today's standards, we just consider that to just be um, egregiously brutal. Unfortunately, we don't have to look very hard to realize that, uh, you know, the beliefs that shore up those kinds of practices are still very much with us. Back around the 1930s was a time when doctors looked upon disability as an illness to be cured and sterilization to prevent hereditary blindness. Does your research show any evidence of forced sterilization of blind Canadians? I've not targeted blindness specifically. What I've done, though, is um, just kind of looked more broadly at some of the old records. And the level of detailing is up for interpretation, if you will. And a lot of that old sort of archival material, it reads as, um, you know, and, and, you know, I don't mean to be excessively harsh, but it reads as people in power just wielding that and uh, taking up any excuse to detect and then manage and control and eliminate any form of difference, really. So we've been talking about sterilization, but are there other more subtle forms of eugenics that could be in use today that maybe we're not recognizing even? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's where I think it gets sort of simultaneously less weighty, but at the same time, um, in some respects, more dangerous, that a lot of the practices that we employ today are built upon or continuation of what I would argue are eugenics logic. And that is any of the, you know, institutionalization that we follow uh, in terms of containing people that we perceive to be psychiatrically in need or, or unbalanced, any of the institutional kind of practices for, you know, people with disabilities broadly, I mean, including, you know, group homes. Um, you know, there's some critical disability writing that says, you know, we, we shrunk the size of the institution and changed the postal code. But, you know, still, like institutional practices are very much operative. And so, you know, um, uh, it goes to languages that we or um, terms that we considered, you know, asylums, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the day to current day, any kind of institutions, you know, and I would put schools in that category in some of the practices of segregation, certainly hospitals, as I just said, you know, the psychiatric ward, you know, they've got a reputation and they've got their own floor and so on. 
rehab settings, uh, you know, broadly are, are sort of institutional and uh, as are prisons. So just all of these ways that we have in predicated on a eugenics logic of trying to keep our society orderly by putting people that are characterized in some way, shape or form as disorderly and tucking them, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind, or certainly into a contained sort of setting. So, I mean, I think that there, we, we just got to turn our head in any direction and we see some form of uh, evidence of eugenics logic in how we organize ourselves today. So how much is fear of others a motivating factor in the eugenics discussion and how do you see that playing out in the future? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I spend so much time working in these spaces and, 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 and I, and I hope and I believe, you know, and I see shifts and I see, you know, cracking opening, open of, you know, just a, a really more authentic sort of embrace and just kind of a, a, a setting aside of personal difference and just an, an embrace, you know, of, of all forms of being. I think fear, I think insecurity, I think intolerance just for that which is different, intolerance for um, people who take more time, you know, to be understood, uh, intolerance for people who move more slowly. Um, all of those kinds of things are more what I am worrying about right at this moment. Um, um, I think some of our fears are being allayed, but I see as a 24-7 digital world um, an amping up of that a drive for productivity and achievement, and that makes me feel really anxious about the ways in which space is left to value different ways of being. You know, there's uh, National Societies for Genetics Counseling, and there's a lot of tension in that space for the ways in which those organizations have been called out for allying with abortion providers. Uh, you know, if we want to just um, think in a very sort of um, tangible example, we know that around 12 weeks of pregnancy, women continue to be screened for birth defect, if you will, quote unquote, chromosomal abnormality. And, you know, the ratio of uh, people who opt to abort if there's a detection of Down syndrome in the fetus, the numbers are really distressing. The, the, the rate of that is, um, of abortion is really distressing. In this podcast, you heard the voices of three women discussing their experiences with the healthcare services and eugenics. And in our next podcast, we're going to be talking to three men who are going to be talking about the science and the practice of eugenics and also about some of their own lived experiences. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio, Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at 
triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.